this brings us to, well, what did they mean by Easter in those days? Because they were choosing the historical Sunday uh, because of its uh, because of the great power of history, but they weren't choosing it to tell the historical story. They were choosing it for the spiritual power of the first Easter, and they recognized that it is only by the grace of the risen one in our hearts that the stone of our hearts will be rolled away, and the greater harmony and oneness of the body of Christ will be made more evident. That's what they meant by resurrection. Resurrection was an increase in evident love, was mm. an increase in manifest forgiveness, was an increase in the thirst for justice, was an increase in the ability to be more creative and vital. It was a present moment experience. Friends, welcome back. How are you? Welcome to the What If Project podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn, and this is episode 89, and it's part number one of a really exciting series that we're doing uh, for Easter. It's called Deconstructing Easter with the letters D and E in parentheses because we're going to take some things apart over these next five days together. And then I hope that in the midst of taking things apart, we can also put some things back together and uh, we can leave uh, this series, we can leave this this season uh, equipped to grow deeper in our walk with the divine. Uh, that's that's the goal. And, and so it's a five-part series that's going to take place over the next five days. Who does that? We're going to do five episodes in a row, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, talking all about different themes around Easter. We're going to talk about crucifixion. We're going to talk about atonement. We're going to talk about resurrection. We're going to talk about the foot washing, the washing of feet, the Last Supper, all bunch of different things are going to come up. So fasten your seatbelts uh, because we're going to go at some some big topics and uh, we're going to push up against some boundaries as well. And uh, I am excited to share it with you. We have many different voices uh, coming in for this series. Uh, so today we're going to talk to Dr. Alexander John Shia. He's been on the podcast multiple times before. He is a very close friend of mine. Um, he is a mentor of mine. He's somebody that I talk to on a regular basis. Um, I love him. He is a brother. He is a friend. And uh, this is just a, a wonderful conversation that you're about to hear. Tomorrow, we're going to talk to the one and the only David Hayward, uh, also known as the Naked Pastor. And that's probably the conversation that pushes up against the most um, boundaries, I guess you could say, and will likely make you feel the most uncomfortable. We go, we go down some some paths, and we talk about some things, uh, but we come out the other side. I think feeling a lot lighter, and really excited uh, to move forward into Easter weekend. Uh, Saturday, we're going to talk to the one and the only, the Reverend Doctor Matthew Fox, who's going to talk to us about. Uh, resurrection, 
He's going to talk to us about creation, spirituality. He's going to talk to us about a whole bunch of different things. Sunday, the one and the only John Dominic Crossan is going to talk to us about resurrection, how resurrection in the West is very different uh, than resurrection in the East. And he wrote a book called Resurrecting Easter. Got to go get it. Fascinating stuff. And then Monday, we'll kind of tie back into our Women's Voices You Need to Hear series. And we're going to talk to um, Amy Jill Levine, who is uh, Jewish, and she's a scholar, a theologian, a professor. She's going to talk to us about Passion Week and uh, just kind of take us back into those dusty streets that Jesus walked on and kind of talk to us about what was going on in the world at his time. Also going to talk to us about uh, one of his more uh, well-known parables and kind of take us back into the context and share with us what that parable might really be about. So lots of crazy things coming up. I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, special music all throughout the series I'm also excited to share with you uh, is from my friend Derek Webb. Uh, so Derek Webb um, used to be part of a uh, major Christian label, major Christian band, and you can Google search him and find out all of the details. But today, he's doing his own solo work. His life has has changed a lot. He's much different now than he was then. He's on a journey. Um, I follow him on Facebook, Twitter, all the social media places. He's always posting something that is thought-provoking, uh, that encourages me in my own journey. And uh, I'm excited to share his music with you. I, I sent him a message on Instagram. I said, hey, I love your new album. It's called Targets. I said, I love your new album. Do you mind if for my Easter series, I kind of play some of your music uh, and transition in the episodes and then kind of play the whole song at the end. He's like, yeah, absolutely. That would be great. So props to Derek. Derek, if you hear this, thank you for letting me share your music. Thank you for your music. Uh, thank you for the work you're doing. It inspires me in my own creative work. And uh, you are awesome. So anyway, I'll put the link to that, all of his music in the show notes. Uh, go check it out, download it, pass it around, share it, uh, give it a listen while you're in quarantine or social distancing and all those different things. Also in the show notes, there will be links to Patreon. Patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show uh, financially. So if this thing has an encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, that's a place where you can go to support the show. Anywhere from $3 a month to $30 a month, multiple tiers in between. Every tier gets a reward. And uh, it's a really fun thing to do. We got 24 people right now who are patrons. Uh, so thank you all for your support. Um, if you haven't signed up, go check it out. If you can do it, if you can't, that's cool too. I get that finances are tight. We're in crazy times right now with this pandemic. I know some people are out of jobs, all those different things. If you can't do it, you can't do it. That's fine. I love you just the same. Thank you for your support and just listening um, and just being and just being you. Also, What If Project Community is a place uh, on Facebook where you can go to find people like you. It's a closed Facebook group. We're in there having conversations about life, about spirituality, about God, sharing resources that we have picked up that have been helpful for us, and uh, just cheering one another on in our own spiritual journey. So go check that out. Link to that will also be in the show notes. So all of that to say... Uh, let's get the ball rolling. Uh, this is episode number 89. It's part one of our Easter series, Deconstructing Easter. And it's my conversation with my friend, my mentor, the one, the only, 
Dr. Alexander John Shia. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, today we are joined by Alexander John Shia, and to use a baseball reference, uh, he is stepping up to the plate for his third at bat here at the podcast. So Alexander, uh, thank you for dropping by, my friend. Hey, it's always a pleasure, Glenn. Uh, really, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, thank you, me too. Is there anybody on base if I'm at the plate? Is there anybody on base? Um, no, we have actually. You know what? The bases are loaded, Alexander. All right, and, uh, okay, all right. You're right. stepping put up, the, and this put, is the big put time. Put the pressure on. Put the it's pressure the bottom on. of the ninth. There's a couple strikes. Got to do your thing. Okay. So before we jump in, though, uh, maybe tell our What If Project family uh, what have you been up to since we last talked at Christmas? I know you've been doing some traveling. You're working on a book. I've heard rumors of this publishing house you're doing with Nora. So catch us up to speed on all things, Alexander. Uh, well, we are about to release a hardback edition of the book that up to this point has been called Heart and Mind. Mm. And the hardback edition, and that book will continue to be in print, uh, paperback and on Kindle. The hardback edition is going to be a slightly different title. It's going to be called Radical Transformation, mm. The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. And that should be out uh, within two to three weeks. We're actually... We're looking at about the 12th of March as a possible release date for that. Okay. And yes, Nora Speakman and I are birthing a publishing house, which is mm. going to be called the Shia Speakman Publish, the Shia Speakman House, S-S-H. Mm. Um, and uh, very excited about the chance to offer authors who are writing in fresh thought, uh, in the great traditions on the way of transformation. And I'm about to leave the States. I'm probably, when this airs, I'll be in Europe somewhere, but I'm, a, I'm headed to London, where I'm going to be working for eight days with the international leadership of Salvation Army, who are bursting with this work of the Four Gospel Journey. And they are already creating programs that, like they've got a program going on right now for 18 to 24 year olds called their gap year program and mm. the results that they're seeing are so exciting that they're bringing me over to to take them uh, deeper and further and wider and we'll see what trouble we can get into and then i go from there <laughs> to spain uh, mm. where i'll be leading an eight-day easter retreat that's amazing and, uh, it is I, I it's like that retreat is already filled and people are signing up for 2021 it's already a waiting uh, list. <laughs> yeah, we got we got a waiting list. It, it's just amazing. So wow. life is very. It's just there's so, there's such energy. People are so hungry for a fresh message. Yeah, and how how did you get how did uh, how did the Salvation Army get a hold of your stuff? Well, very interesting. Uh, the Nomad Podcast, mm. and <clears throat> I was in London last June and 
they will only record in person, which I okay. thought is an interesting way. And so I actually flew to London to record this, to record the Nomad podcast. And the youth minister team for Salvation Army was listening to it. Huh. And they just exploded. I mean, it was about the only way I can describe it. And if you go on their podcast, which is called the All Terrain Podcast, they ask every guest the four questions from my work. How do you face change? How do you move through suffering? How do you receive joy? Mm. Um, how do you mature in service? And did they take, did they, did they use the message? Like, did they tweak it at all so it fits more like youth-oriented stuff? Or did they take it pretty much as is? No, they, well, first of all, I've got to say that when I go next week and sit down with them, I'm going to learn a lot more about exactly what they've done. Okay. But I do know that they have taken the book and they're not, they're not, the, the book is for the leadership Okay. and they have adapted all of that material for the 18 to 24 year olds. And we're already talking about how we might produce uh, what they've developed because they're having such a phenomenal uh, response from, from that 18 to 24 age group. That's amazing. So it must have like another sphere of the quadrados for a younger generation. Absolutely. And I, I mean, yeah. I know that the, the, the book, the heart and mind book, the radical transformation book is it, it's a, it, it's a pretty hefty volume. Yeah. And, and it had to be to establish this new way of thinking, mm. but now we're going to take that work and we're going to put it into uh, material that's appropriate up and down the age grade. Right. Okay. I mean, okay. here I, here I am. I, I'm in San Antonio tonight, and I'm working with a Methodist church here that's developing that material for preschool through elderhood. Really? And so, yes. Huh. Uh, it, it is just all of a sudden. This is the 20th year of this work, and I feel like we walked through a doorway into a whole new room. That's amazing. And what I find so encouraging about your story is that you've been, uh, just like you told me before we hit record, that you have been kind of persevering with this message for such a long time. And here you are at this stage in your life and all these doors are opening. And I know for like myself, sometimes, I mean, I'm 38 years old and sometimes I can even get hard on myself that, you know, there's not more happening or I've worked so hard at this and things aren't happening the way I thought, but it's just encouraging to me to see that uh, you just continue to persevere and that the spirit is moving with your work is just amazing. It, it is to me. I'm glad that 20 years ago, nobody told me it was going to be this long or hard. Yeah. But, but here we are. And here we are, right? <laughs> so the conversation is going to slide into uh, an Easter series that we're doing here at the podcast. And so what I wanted to do is I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Easter. And from our few uh, email exchanges back and forth, uh, I think that you're probably about to uh, blow my mind. And so <laughs> I have a pen in my hand. I'm just, I'm toying whether or not I'm going to take notes or I'm just going <laughs> to sit here and listen and try to, and try to keep up. But uh, I want to ask you two questions and uh, we'll see kind of where the spirit leads. And uh, the first question I want to ask is, can you paint for us um, a narrative of Easter that's maybe different uh, from the evangelical narrative. And before you answer that, just to kind of give some context for our listeners, um, Alexander, I am exhausted of the, for lack of a better word, the Americanized uh, Western Jesus. 
Uh, I said yeah. this to somebody on the podcast recently that like, I'm just at this place in my life where, and my faith where like, I literally can't stomach that narrative of, you know, God is this God who has a stick in his hand and he's, you know, he's mad at my sin. And so <laughs> Jesus took the punishment. Ooh. And if I believe that I go to heaven, if I don't, I go to hell. And I remember when I used to pastor a church, like the, the pressure of Easter morning to have people say like a sinner's prayer or come up to the altar or put their faith in Jesus was like so immense that they could leave there with their eternity secure going to heaven. Like I just couldn't stand it. And I know like a lot of our listeners are coming out of that evangelical world as well. And so I'm wondering, can you just paint for us maybe another way, maybe even a more authentic way to understand uh, the Easter story? Uh, what is this year all about? What is this time of the year all about? Uh, take us, take us to church, Alexander. <laughs> all right. All right, Glenn. Yeah. So, so you know what? My first degree is anthropology. Yeah. And, uh, and what I am inviting all of us to do is go back to the early centuries and find out what's going on on the ground. Because mm. where we are today with Easter is a theological construct that's almost like the Tower of Babel. Hmm. Yes. So the question becomes, why then in the late second, early third century, did Christianity decide to take one of the 52 Easter's every year and do something different? What Hmm. was it? What was going to be special about this springtime in the Northern Hemisphere, this springtime Sunday that was going to become great Easter as distinct from the other 51 Easter's. Hmm. And what's going on in Christianity at this point is forget all the theological babble that you've heard. What is happening in the Christian communities, late second century, early third century, that was, that was crying for a new spiritual practice. And Hmm. to the best of my understanding, Here's what's going on. We know that the first great art form of our tradition is is that we became the the community that was pan-tribal. And you have to recall that up to the first century, Judaism is one of those radiant traditions that has this teaching that all people are equal before God. Hmm. But Judaism never went to the next step, which was to have a room where all the world's people could sit together regardless of their bloodline. That's the hallmark of early Christianity, that we are the first tradition that there's a historical record of. And I always say this, there may have been another tradition out there that didn't leave a record behind, that they were an experiment, that, but we were the tradition that pioneered this experiment and matured it. It's a beautiful idea that we're going to say to the world, we've got a table and it no longer matters who your mother was. Hmm. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're edu- educated or a slave. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what region of the world you're in, you, you were born in. We have a room and a table where you can sit side by side with brother and sister. Mm. Now, that's an incredible vision that even today we're still 
yearning uh, to, to welcome even more of the world's diversity to our table. And I would even include today, we're, we're yearning to add the whole range of sexual diversity at the table as brother and sister. Mm. Uh, but when we go back to the first century and realize that there was no antecedent in human behavior to have such a community, that what the early church discovered was it was fairly easy to have somebody accept, quote unquote, Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The harder work was to teach and to form an individual to be part of a community which was made up of all the world's diversity. Because up to that point in human history, we were tribal. We were either in the tribe of our bloodline or we were in the tribe of our education line or our socioeconomic line, but people didn't mix across categories and across bloodline. Mm. So there was no way, I mean, yeah, you can, you can live the beatific vision of oneness for a short while, but then how long does that last before people start saying, well, you know, the slaves, when do they have a bath? Should they be sitting in the back? Mm. And, and, and those people from the Eastern provinces, God, they talk a lot. And those <laughs> people from the Western provinces, opinionated? <laughs> and you can, you, you can just hear what's going on in the room. Mm. And what happens in Christianity as, it, as we move into the late second century and Roman oppression begins to lift because Roman oppression served us in continuing to create a sense of oneness because we were under the thumb of the emperor and even liable to be killed. Mm. But as the oppression begins to lift, the arguments in the community begin to rise and the, the arguments between the communities begin to become fierce. And what the church, that sounds much more formal than that time at the end of the second century, the early third century, but all the Christian communities is what I'm calling church, the whole panoply and the diversity of being Christian in those days. As we began to talk to each other, it was like what started out as curiosity. Well, what do you do on Sunday? Oh, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh. Well, how are you baptizing? Uh, mm. and, and the tensions within Christianity began to mount because as Roman oppression lifted, we had the luxury to argue with each other. Mm. And Christianity said, and I'm oversimplifying this, but the resolution was, if we allow theological debate to overtake the felt charity of spiritual practice, we will lose the sense of who we are. And therefore, we are going to choose one Sunday, and that Sunday is going to be around the historical date of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because we're going to use the power of that historical moment to invite us to remember the font of grace 
that calls all of our diversity to be brother and sister to each other. Hmm. And what's so important about this early um, Lent Easter, and I, and I will tell you that Lent in this earliest moment was three days long, followed by a, a great Sunday, which had many, many different prayer forms in it. But what's so instructive to us today, which I, I, if I had one wish, if somebody gave me the magic wand and I could wave it tomorrow for all of us, it would be to remember how the ancient Lent began. Mm. And the leader of the community, which in those days was a bishop, and the bishop's sign of authority was the shepherd's staff, which is called the crozier. But in those days, the community came together three days before Easter Sunday in the presence of the bishop. And the bishop stands forward and lays the crozier, lays the staff on the floor and stands back with the community and says, and now there are no bishops and now there are no priests and now there are no deacons and now there are no theologians and now there are no the laity what we have now for these three days of Lent is a people who know that we don't have the answer. We don't know what God wishes us to do. And so we're going to enter into three days of prayer and fasting in the fervent hope that God will give us the next great step for us to take as mm. a people. Mm. And so <clears throat> this ancient Lent was not penitential in any way was it penitential mm. it was the people of god recognizing that for our sense of oneness with each other and for the radiant diversity that we wanted with each other that we needed a time to step back from our judgments and our opinions and our theological discussions and to pray and to do body fasting. And, mm. and the body fasting wasn't a penitential fast. It was, I want my body, I want my stomach ache to, to raise up in me the desire for greater oneness. Mm. I want to use the physicalness of the physical exertion of, of reducing what I eat to help me pray for oneness. Wow. Mm. And... <clears throat> This brings us to, well, what did they mean by Easter in those days? Because they were choosing the historical Sunday uh, because, of its, uh, because of the great power of history. Mm. But they weren't choosing it to tell the historical story. Mm. They were choosing it for the spiritual power of the first Easter. And they recognize that it is only by the grace of the risen one in our hearts that the stone of our hearts will be rolled away and the greater harmony and oneness of the body of Christ will be made more evident. That's what they meant by resurrection. Resurrection was an increase in evident love, was an increase in manifest forgiveness was an increase in the thirst for justice, was an increase in the ability to be more creative and vital. It was a mm. present moment experience mm. 
And it was a present moment experience that was grounded in the radiant diversity of this small community of people from all over the world in every class and every sexual variant at one table as brother and sister to each other. Wow. So it's almost like the resurrection isn't some isn't at all about Jesus going to heaven and taking some people with him, but it's about bringing heaven to earth in the sense of the table. And I guess inviting us into that sense of oneness to take part in that and to expand the table. Yeah. That they thought of that Easter following the three days of prayer and fasting for oneness, that they thought of that Easter moment as a greater experience of the parousia now, paradise now, here. Mm. Because of our prayer, because of our yearning, because of our fasting, because of our desire to express forgiveness with and for each other, we are more in the image that God wishes us to be as the one body. Mm. Not the uniform one body, the diverse one body, where we understand we're always going to have theological debate. We're always going to have different opinions. That's not where our union is. Union is the union of spiritual practice that welcomes the diversity of theological perspective. Yeah. What's interesting to me is what you said about, too, about Roman oppression, how when Roman oppression lifted, uh, the arguments also began to rise. That makes me think that maybe there's almost a sense where, like, oppression can bring people together, whereas opposed to the lifting of the oppression where things get better can almost in a sense give people their independence and drive them apart. It does. And I think we see evidence of that in the last century. And hmm. when you look at, at the Christian communities um, under the thumb of the Soviet union, and we hear about those communities and, and the risk that they took to come together hmm. and the love and the, and the felt charity and uh, of that, of those small communities that were hidden away. And then as the oppression lifted and as people had more economic opportunity, um, in some ways, the, the, the felt faith was lost. Yeah. Or, or at least dimmed. Huh. Now, you had mentioned to me in our emails that um, foot washing fits into Easter. And I'm imagining yes. from listening to you talk now about the sense of oneness I imagine that somehow ties into foot washing. Well, it does. And, it, and so let, let's go back to this earliest plan, which is three days, hmm. followed by a great night um, that the community spent together coming to, to the dawn of Easter morning. And so um, having gone through the three days, of the three nights and the three days of Lent, where there were a series of prayers, and we're, we're, we're gathered together and we're fasting. And then there is sundown on Saturday. Mm. And after sundown of Saturday comes the first Easter prayer. And that Easter prayer is foot washing. Mm. Now, I'll just slip in one other thought here, and that is for, the, for this ancient Easter um, Easter was not the story of resurrection in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. 
Mm -hmm. uh, for the ancient church, Easter was only the text of John. And because it's not predicated on the scripture historical story, it's predicated on the gospel of John, which is the gospel of communion and union of two becoming one of three becoming one of a community becoming one. Mm. And so therefore, because that was the prayer of Lent may all be one. They understood that it's the way that John tells the passion, death and resurrection, which is the way we would tell it on the great Easter moment. Mm. And that the first ritual of Easter is foot washing that that that's a that the experience of the foot washing is the power of the resurrection mm. that what we have in this moment in the text of john and and it, it's so hard i know for all of us who like myself who grew up catholic or or episcopal anglican lutheran because we're so into the holy week metaphor mm. which i'll remind folks is only 500 years ago <laughs> not how it's not how things got started <laughs> um that this night of the foot washing is this community which has been spending three days praying praying the prayer of oneness mm. now comes to ask for the grace to bow before each other and to watch with each other in the way that we know that Jesus the Christ has already bowed and washed before us. Mm. And here's the other aspects of that foot washing ritual. First of all, we know that uh, going back to those days, uh, in the text when it says Jesus takes off his robe, what Jewish man takes off his robe? Mm. A Jewish man only disrobes in the way that Jesus disrobed before those gathered at table that night, before his spouse. Hmm. And we have so misunderstood. This is not Jesus, wow. the servant of us. This is Jesus, our spouse. Hmm. And what I can only imagine, everyone at table that night is shocked. Yeah. <laughs> Jaws hit the ground, right? <laughs> well, absolutely, because no Jewish man ever appears this way except before his spouse. Huh. This is tantamount to lovemaking. Mm. And you can just, I mean, all the words that we might put on that disrobing, the laying bare, the vulnerability, the intimacy, the love, the beloved. Mm. And the next piece is because we've been, we've been going down the wrong road here mm. because we've, we've interpreted this whole thing about servanthood. And it's not servanthood at all. It's lovemaking. In the Middle East for hundreds of years, foot washing was a ritual in the marriage rite. So when you, when you come back to the context of John's gospel, which is about two or more coming together. The whole gospel is about the grace of two or more coming together. Mm. And then you see this whole beautiful script where it begins with Jesus taking off his robe and taking the, 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 the behavior and the appearance of, of your spouse. Mm. And then begins a foot washing, which is more connected to a marriage rite 
than to the work of a servant cleaning your feet at table. Mm. A servant isn't going to clean your feet at table. A servant is going to clean your feet at the door. Right. We, I love that image. I'm stuck on that image of Jesus, like you said, disrobing, um, going into this foot washing, and that being the equivalent of lovemaking to your spouse. It just has my mind boggled because what you're saying about the whole season of Lent about being the prayer of oneness, that's, I mean, that is the definition of oneness right there. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of, of Jesus, the divine, um, giving that to us. I mean, that's just amazing. Continue. Sorry. (laughs) Well, I mean, and, and, and that's why what I'm saying is we we have to forget the, the movie Mm. that's going in our heads where we've been told over and over again that this foot washing is about the night before Jesus dies. That's not its context in the ancient Easter. The Mm. context is it's only by the power of the resurrection Mm. that you too can become the bride and the bridegroom. You know, that this is the, that after the three days of the, of the community praying and fasting for a desire for greater oneness, Mm. that that this would be the first great ritual of easter by where by which we understand that it is the power of the risen one that will bring us to so lovingly want to be washed and to wash others i'm so happy that you said that the foot washing was almost like a marriage right because uh dane and i when we got married uh it'll be 10 years in october uh, but when we got married, Congratulations. thank you. Uh, we, we didn't do like a garter toss or anything like that. We, we actually did a foot washing and, mm. uh, she washed my feet and I washed her feet. And I think at the time, I remember, I remember some people said, well, it seems like a, you know, it's a nice thing to do, but you know, it's reminds, it brings back that reminder of the night before the crucifixion. And it seems so solemn and it seems so sad and it seems so depressing but we had a sense i don't i didn't have the words for it then because of what you're telling me now this is very new to me but i felt deep in my soul somewhere that this act was really bringing us closer together as one i just felt like and she felt as well that this really just represented what marriage is all about i don't want to take away from the power of that but i'd like to remind us that for 200, for the first 200 years of Christianity, that whenever we came together at table, we did two things and we thought of them both as communion. Hmm. And the first thing that we did every Sunday was we washed feet and then we took the bread and the cup. Hmm. And what happens at this moment, 200 years later, as we begin to develop this Lent Easter, is, is that the church says, quote, church, but all the Christian communities recognize the power of the foot washing is, is so numinous that we want to only do it after a three-day retreat. We mm. want it to be the highlight of the entire year. Mm. And we want every time, every the rest of the year, when, when we come to the table with bread and cup, we want the bread and cup to to carry forward the foot washing. So it's so the culmination. We to, we, yeah. 
Yeah. So we want the foot washing by not doing it so regularly. We mm. want it to have the specialness of this first great prayer of Easter. It gives me a whole nother picture of Easter because I'm um, admittingly really struggle sometimes to come out of the, the evangelical mindset that I painted earlier. And uh, just listening to you talk, I feel like my mind is having a wrestling match with itself, trying yeah. to trying to see uh, Easter through this different this different lens. Because I'm um, admittingly, it, it hasn't been for me in my experience. It hasn't been about a sense of oneness. It's been about we're right and everybody else is wrong, and right. this is what Jesus did, and you need to believe this, or else you're in that group over there. And I think it's just such a a wonderful image, and it gives me a lot of hope is to think that Easter morning, you know, the Easter celebration is about bringing everybody to the table. Yeah. It is. And, and the high moment of this ancient Lent, and Lent, I mean, the high moment of this ancient Easter that started at sundown and went in stages through the night to dawn. But the community would gather and they would wait they would wait for first light and they would wait then for the sun to break the horizon and the first lights mm. of the rays of the sun to strike them. Mm. And at that moment, they would do two things. The entire community in the first light of Easter morning would say again their baptismal promises to each other and to God. Because the promises are, this is how we will carry the oneness of the body of Christ in this room forward with each other this year. Mm. And then everyone, that's the memorial anniversary of the baptismal promises, only said once a year by everybody in the first light of Easter dawn. And then the new ones would be baptized. The new ones wouldn't be baptized at any other time of the year because the, the focus is that this is the high moment of the entire church year is Easter dawn and the moment that the community recommits itself to its baptismal vows, promises, which are really the practices of being Christian. Mm. And therefore, we want the new ones to join us in what we're doing, which is saying the baptismal promises, and then we'll pour the water. So that at that, at that dawn moment, every Easter morning, the entire community will once again be renewed in its commitment to its baptism. And that every year, people will, will remember that moment as their baptismal moment. You know, and it's just like it. I I can imagine that that every time you go to somebody else's wedding and you sit there and you hear them exchange vows, yeah, that it brings you back to the moment that you said yours. Yes, yeah. And for the early community, which was working on this sense of oneness, it was very important that there was one moment that everyone would share as the baptismal moment. And that it wasn't an individual anniversary, but it was the community's anniversary. Wow. That reminds me as being a pastor, just even on Easter 
we would always do two services in the church that I was at. We did a sunrise service and then we did the regular service. And I think, oh, I wish I would have known all this. So when I, when we were doing the sunrise service, because just that, that idea of the sun, we'd literally be out. We had a cemetery behind the church that was an old church built in like the 1800s and beautiful setting. Sun would have come up, you know, we'd start the service and just to think, putting, thinking of myself back in that moment, the sun coming up, the rays hitting our faces, as that being a reminder of our of our commitment as a community, as opposed to our individual relationship with God, which is always what it turned into being um, in those sermons and those messages. Again, this is just a whole other layer of understanding for me. This is fascinating. Well, it's 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 the greatest passion of my life, and mm. I um, in 1976 I had the great great good fortune to be in a one-week seminar with Raymond Brown, who I think is one of the preeminent scholars of the Gospel of John. And he just started opening the, the, opening the text of John up and understanding how the, the text of John is so much the mystery of, and grace of baptism. Mm. And he started me on, on this, this research, uh, stripping away all the holy weeks going back, going back, going back, going, going back, but always with an anthropologist eyes, always wondering what's going on in the community that they would choose to do something at this moment. Hmm. And, and it's never, it never starts out as a theological concept. It starts out because there's a, a felt emotional, psychological something that the community needs. Mm. Have we lost sight of that, you think, because of our Western fascination with intellectualism and answers and theologies? Like, have we lost sight of that um, that emotional, um, spiritual aspect because of that? Or yes, misplaced it, have, I guess? Misplaced we, it, maybe? We have, I mean, I, I'm an academic. I've got a PhD. I love theological discourses much <laughs> right? as anybody. Sure. Um, but... Yes, I think what we have lost is that sense of the bishop at the beginning of Lent laying his crozier down and saying yeah. to the theologians, be quiet, to the uh. priests, be quiet, to the bishops, be quiet, to the people, be quiet. Uh. We all stand here on the ground of not knowing. Now uh. let us together humbly seek God's further revelation to us. So maybe Lent is not so much about letting go of our, of our sins or uh, refraining from certain things, whatever that might be, but almost letting go of our answers. Good spiritual practice is always good spiritual practice. Yeah. The question I've got for us today is what Easter do, what Easter will, will give us the most new life. Mm. And, and as I hear so many of our churches get into theological argument and think that the answer to theological argument is better theology, hmm. our ancestors are weeping. The answer to theological argument is prayer, fasting, almsgiving, and profound silence. Which is almost the opposite of the way that we see it today. <laughs> it is. It right? Is. Wow. Is. Huh. And I, I, you know, if I could, and I, if I could back up a moment, yeah, please. One of the great, one of the great scriptures that was used in the ancient three-day Lent, 
and it's 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 a very important and it's a fundamental scripture is is Jesus and Nicodemus from the Gospel of John. Hmm. And and that and the reason for that is is and that's the next text after the bishop lays the crozier down, because Nicodemus is the good holy teacher. He's he's my favorite seminary professor. He's <laughs> the person I idolize and want to emulate. And we what we realize is that every generation is obligated to think through what we were given and to ask God to help us see more. Mm. And Nicodemus was caught. He was drawn to Jesus, but he couldn't quite go there because he had a theological concept in his, in his head. He had known since, as he says to Jesus, you know, for 2,000 years, we know that you cannot give the gift of Yahweh to someone who doesn't have Jewish blood in them. Hmm. Therefore, Jesus, and this is, forget all the metaphysical mumbo jumbo. Here's what's going (laughs) on in that text. Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, we know, Jesus, you can't take someone who is already born and put them back in a Jewish mother's womb and give them Jewish blood. Hmm. We know, Hmm. Jesus, that Jewish blood is God's natural law that gives us the privilege to know Yahweh. Mm. And everybody who wants to defend anything in Christianity on quote-unquote natural law is stuck in the Nicodemus trap. Mm. They can never truly know the Christ because they've got a good theological concept from yesterday that needs to be rethought. Mm. And they're not willing to allow the Spirit of God to move them in new ways. So Nicodemus remains the tragic figure of the entire gospel. Mm. And it's why the Nicodemus gospel was the first gospel of Lent, because essentially the Christian community is saying to each other, we need Nicodemus. We need the theological conservative position that questions us and makes sure we don't move willy-nilly to to milk and cookies Mm. but the nicodemus person can never be at the head of the table what's at the head of the table is the spirit of god which is moving us forward and wider and greater and more compassionate and deeper love Mm. the whole concept of lent for the early for our ancestors was Mm. this was the retreat that the community needed every year so that they would keep growing in wisdom Mm. together and that we would never allow our favorite holy teacher from yesterday to go forward without being brought back and laid humbly before God and say, God, teach us more. I like that too. It's not about, it's not about throwing away the old teacher. It's, 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 no. about, it's, about re, it's about reforming, it's about growing, it's about evolving, changing, laying it down, letting it become something more. I mean, I know that in what I teach today, there are omissions and there are errors. Hmm. Not that I intend them, but I'm not omniscient. Yeah. And I know that the people I teach, I hope I am freeing them 
to go further, to see more, to think deeper, to yeah. know God larger. Yeah. So Alexander, I had a whole nother question for you <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to go there because that's, that's going to be, that's going to be part four of the Alexander series. Uh, so we'll save it for another day, but I do want to ask you um, a lot of our listeners, this, this episode is going to fall into a series, as you know, of four, maybe five episodes in a row, uh, five days in a row. And I know a lot of our listeners, um, they maybe haven't gone to church in a while. Uh, they're kind of struggling with their sense of community. So I know a lot of people have told me that they might not even be going to church this Easter. They're just going to stay home, maybe listening to even this episode on Easter morning or Easter weekend, uh, depending on when it drops. But what, what would you say to those people? Um, I've been asking uh, some of the, the guests who will be in this series to maybe get a little pastoral for me. If you were speaking to these people on Easter morning or Saturday, whenever this episode drops, what, what would you say to those people as they head into Easter and they head out of Easter and into the rest of their lives? What, 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 how can they live resurrected lives, I guess is what I'm asking you, in light of everything you just shared with us. So uh, I, I love, there's one of my favorite uh, prayers uh, uh, at the beginning of, of Easter, I think it was by St. John Christendom, and he says, I don't care if you've been praying and fasting for 40 days. I don't care if you've been praying and fasting for a week. I don't care if you've been praying and fasting for four days. I don't care if you've been praying and fasting for one hour. I don't care if this is the first moment that you pray and fast. Mm. Let us now pray for oneness. Yeah. And I would just say, whether it's you and your spouse, whether it's you and with your children, whether it's you with a friend, to remember that the ancient prayer of Lent Easter is the prayer, may all be one. Mm. And that starts with me and one other person. Mm. And uh, whatever way you may pray, whatever rituals you may do, whatever candles you may light or not light, I would just say, um, pray with me. May all be one. In this, in this world right now, which seems so fractious and so divided. Mm. Can we pray with a full heart? May all be one. Amen. And Alexander, I thank you for uh, your, your work because I think it empowers people to live in that mindset of, of oneness and bringing people together. So, so thank you for what you do. Glenn, it's, it's an honor to be with you and, through you to speak to others uh, a blessed blessed easter thank you you as well